Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO for short, has been called the Mexican Donald Trump. But is that description accurate? López Obrador is the left-wing nationalist who just beat all of Mexico's traditional parties and won his nation's presidency. His campaign was filled with anti-establishment rhetoric and a promise to stand up to President Trump. What does his win mean for our neighbor to the south? Joining us to discuss this earthquake in Mexican politics is Dina Siegelvan, director of AJC's Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. Dina is one of America's foremost experts on Mexican society and politics. She herself hails from Mexico City, where AMLO previously served as mayor. Dina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, has been called the Mexican Donald Trump. He has just been elected next president of Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit about what this moment in Mexican politics means? Is this an earthquake? I think that definitely it's an earthquake, uh, but I have to say that at least for the very beginning, it's an earthquake, a good earthquake, uh, because Mexico for the first time had a, a massive electoral process. Mexico had never seen so many uh, citizens vote not only for president, but for 3,600 elected officials. And uh, also, it was a, a process that went uh, without any, it was unhindered. There was no violence. Um, you know, it speaks volumes about the strength of Mexican democracy. Uh, at the same time, you have a candidate that comes at a very critical moment in Mexico's history, where you have rampant uh, crime uh, and violence. You have corruption, which is really... Uh, eroding the social fabric uh, of Mexico. Uh, and you have about uh, 40% of the population which lives in, in poverty. So you have now a candidate that says that he's going to change things for, for most Mexicans, um, and he has the full mandate to do so. He was elected, and his party not only won the presidency, but he also won Congress. And he won many other positions around the country. So he has a very wide mandate to undertake these transformations. Why at this moment are Mexicans pushing for this kind of transformation? Because as I mentioned, Mexico really is at a crossroads. You know, when, as I said, when you have these levels of corruption, corruption has always been a, a tremendous problem for Mexico. But during the last six years, unfortunately, it acquired dimensions that were unimaginable. And people are just fed up with this type of situation. On the other hand, as I said, 40% of poor, you know, in a country which at the same time is considered part of the, um, of, of, you know, it's the second largest economy in Latin America, is part of the OCDE countries. You know, it's unimaginable that you could have those levels of poverty. And at the same time, you know, you have violence. 26,000 people were killed in Mexico just in the first six months of the year. You know, Mexicans cannot live in this situation anymore. And they gave their vote 
to someone who they believe an outsider, at the same time he's really not an outsider, he's a man of the system, but he's perceived as an outsider, an anti-system type of uh, candidate that can bring about these transformations. Wow. Some of those numbers, you know, that 40 percent poverty rate, those numbers of murders in Mexico, those are really shocking. Are you concerned at all? You know, is there broader concern that these promises that Lopez Obrador is making, these promises he's making are unfulfillable? You know, he's kind of tapping into the same cult of personality rhetoric that we heard from Donald Trump. Many of the problems that Donald Trump promised to address have not yet been addressed. Is that reason for concern in Mexico? Well, I just want to make sure that we understand that Lopez Obrador is no Donald Trump. I mean, I know that because of this anti-outsider, anti-system type of personality and, you know, and both of them, you know, by force of personality also uh, were elected. You know, we try to make this type and, and of course, the fact that they, um, you know, they, they, they engaged in some populist rhetoric we tend to think that they are analogous. They are not analogous. I think that AMLO is a very Mexican type of candidate. Yes, you know, definitely his personality, you know, Mexico, as you know, in Latin America, you have caudillismo, the caudillo is the, you know, the hero, the strong man, you know, that can bring about change. Of course, you have that element in AMLO. Uh, And of course, you know, he uh, really engaged in all kinds of messages that resonated very strongly with his base, just like uh, Donald Trump did. But uh, I think that one of the, the differences is that He, even though it was a campaign that was very negative in in many instances and the candidates were vying, you know, very strongly to come out first, he never stigmatized or demonized any group, you know, um, as as responsible for what was going on in Mexico. Of course, politicians, you know, they, they were responsible for what was going on in Mexico, but he was not really stigmatizing any group. So I think that there's a difference there that I wanted to make sure that we understand. At the same time, yes, I'm concerned about um, how much can he uh, make his goals operational. Uh, and that is because, you know, even though he might have, you know, the best of intentions, you know, these are endemic problems that require more than six years uh, to be resolved. How is it going to bring about social justice and, you know, have the, the resources to do so and at the same time make sure that Mexico's macroeconomic indicators continue to be stable, for example, that's a, you know, and not to overspend, you know, and, and make sure that Mexico doesn't go back to the crisis is that we all knew, you know, when I was growing up, you know, we went from every six years, we went into recession and we went into a crisis. How does he do that? It will be a challenge and he needs the support of all Mexicans. He said it during his uh, acceptance speech. He needs every single Mexican to be able to address these problems in a successful way. You mentioned that Lopez Obrador ran as an outsider, but that really he is a man of the system. He was once mayor of Mexico City. Did that give us any inkling about what his presidency will look like? Was he a caudillo? Was he a strong man there as well? He was pragmatic. He was very pragmatic. And, you know, he actually he was a very successful mayor. And he engaged with, for example, with business people to bring about the transformation of downtown Mexico City, which, you know, in that sense, it gives us hope, of course, that he 
you know, he understands uh, what's at stake when, when you are in power. So we think that there might be, you know, there's hope that he's going to be able to engage with the people he has to engage, to surround himself with pragmatists, you know, in order to bring about change. The problem is that, you know, in order to gain power, he uh, established a coalition where you have all kinds of groups and individuals, and we don't know to what extent he's going to have to pay back for their support during the elections. But at the same time, we do believe that, you know, he has Mexico's interests uh, at heart. He's an honest man. Uh, he's a modest man. And that we hope that, you know, he will find the right way to bring about the change that he is talking about for the well-being of all Mexicans and for the well-being also of our relations with the United States, the region in general. What was AMLO's relationship with the Mexico City Jewish community when he was mayor? He had a, a good relationship. Uh, the Mexican Jewish community is a very sophisticated community politically. They engage with all political parties. They're nonpartisan. And they had established a very good working relationship with the mayor. And even now, during the campaign trail, they met with him and uh, presented to him their agenda and their concerns. So we believe that this relationship will continue. There's already been statements in that direction. Many members of the Jewish community who are in the business community, I think, you know, will be needed by, uh, by the new president to create jobs and uh, to be able to implement his projects. So we're sure that that engagement will continue to be quite positive. You were recently quoted, Dina, in the Jerusalem Post talking about Mexico-Israel relations. You said that they were in a a golden age. Uh, AMLO's campaign, as you mentioned, was largely defined by domestic politics. Do we have any insights on what we can expect his foreign policy to be and where it might lead Mexico-Israel relations? We... We're, that's one of the areas where I think we are more, um, you know, expectant uh, of what's going to be happening. We, we really don't have yet a clear idea of where he's going. Uh, we know that some of the people that have advised him on foreign policy speak about Mexico going back to a more traditional foreign policy, which Mexico practiced for many years before, let's say, in the 70s, um, a little bit during the 80s, which uh, basically looks more inwards a nationalist foreign policy, non-intervention in the affairs of other countries, self-determination, you know, of people. These are some of the principles of the pillars of Mexico's foreign policy. And in the past, Mexico was part of the non-aligned, you know, third world countries. And we were a little bit concerned that Mexico might hearken back to that. Uh, We've heard different positions, different points of view regarding that they might not go as far as that. But we're not sure, you know, in multilateral forums. We think that bilaterally, Mexico and Israel will continue to have very close ties. One of the messages that uh, have been sent uh, to him and his aides is that uh, relations with Israel or with the Arab world are not a zero-sum game. You know, you can have relations with Israel, with the Arab world, with the Palestinians, and that it's okay, you know, you can um, combine all of them. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. 
And, you know, who will be his foreign policy advisor, main advisor, and his foreign minister will be very telling. Dina, my last question, one that is perhaps on everyone's minds, will Mexico be paying for Donald Trump's wall? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> I don't think so, Pacific. <laughs> And, you know, he said uh, he said that Mexico is not going to be anybody's piñata. That's what AMLO said. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Dina, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing these insights. My pleasure, Sefi. Thank you so much. In February... Poland passed a bill that could have made it illegal to discuss Polish culpability in the Holocaust. Criticism poured in from around the world and Polish-Jewish relations entered a dark period. In a bid to repair its relationship with key allies, Poland recently amended the legislation to remove some of the offending clauses. And last week, AJC Warsaw held the No to Hatred conference, urging zero tolerance for prejudice, xenophobia, and anti-Semitism. Here to talk with us about both developments is the Warsaw-based director of AJC's Central Europe office, Agnieszka Markiewicz. Agnieszka, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Can you just give us all a reminder about why this bill that Poland passed in February was considered inflammatory? It all started with a very speedy procedure initiated by the Polish parliament on January 26th and finalized by the president's signature in February, um, in which Poland adopted a version of an already existing Institute of National Remembrance Law. And the amended law, uh, especially in its most problematic article 55A, Uh, made it a crime punishable up to three years in prison to use statements suggesting that Poland, understood as the Polish nation or the Polish state, bears responsibility for crimes against humanity committed by Nazi Germany during the time of the Second World War. The intention uh, declared by the lawmakers was to namely um, have a tool to fight using of the term Polish death camps, uh, which refers to the to the former death and concentration Nazi German uh, death and concentration camps located in Nazi Germany occupied Poland because that's the uh, official name that is being used. And while ADC has a lot of understanding and agrees that using of this term is a distortion of history and understands why it's sensitive for many in Poland, um, from the very beginning. Um, we were very much concerned about the legislation. Legislation. We thought it was unnecessary. It inflamed the debate over historical responsibility. The debate, which, by the way, of course, is an important one, but we stated from the very beginning that it's education and dialogue, not punitive laws, that are essential to building greater awareness about the history of the Second World War uh, and about Holocaust and uh, among the complicated story of Poland in all of this. This past Wednesday was eventful, with Poland first backtracking on the law and then signing a joint statement uh, between Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Is everything better now? Yes. uh, (laughs) We think that uh, the amendments that were, again, uh, adopted uh, last week 
um, are an important step. Um, what, what has changed mostly is the fact that the controversial Article 55A, um, which, which, which had the provision of, of the criminal responsibility, it has been removed. Um, and it is a step that uh, AGC has welcomed, and we think that it was a very important step um, to be able to to finish this phase of the most difficult and intensive conflict in Polish-Jewish relations and in Polish-Israeli relations um, after the collapse of communism in 1989. Um, as you as you have said. Uh, Polish and Israeli prime ministers, um, they have signed a joint uh, statement which referred, um, which referred to issues uh, from that area, um, to the need of fighting anti-Semitism, um, and to the need of fighting anti-Polonism. Um, and that point, by the way, um, is something that is being criticized. And uh, to an extent, um, this criticism is legitimate. Um, what I mean by that is that for sure there is room for improvement how we talk about uh, complicated and difficult history of Poland. Uh, for sure there are sometimes reactions that are unfair to Poland. Um, but I also think that putting um, on equal grounds the phenomenon of, of anti-Semitism and uh, and sometimes unfair and, and hostile for Poland reactions um, perhaps is not the most fortunate thing to do. Nevertheless, uh, we are glad that this crisis is over and we're glad that the legislation has been changed. There's been a lot of criticism, however, just this week out of Israel. You know, Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial and Museum, referred to grave errors and deceptions in the joint statement. Interestingly, across the political spectrum in Israel's parliament, with the exception of Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party, there's been condemnation. The head of the leftmost party, Tamar Zandberg, said that the declaration was an instance of selling our people's history. The head of the rightmost party, Naftali Bennett, said that it was a betrayal of Holocaust victims. I mean, these are two people who, who don't agree on anything, um, and they do agree that this is a you know a bad deal, a distortion of history in some way. You know, where is this anger, this remaining dissatisfaction coming from? Undoubtedly, the legislative changes do not solve all the problematic issues in Polish Jewish relations and uh, in the discourse uh, about Polish Jewish history. However, in, in our opinion, and the opinion of ATC, they were the only to retract from this legislation, and especially from the criminal provisions. It was, in our opinion, it was the only way forward. And without it, without those changes in the legislation, dialogue between Poland and Israel would be impossible. Um, and without the dialogue, uh, I believe, no remaining problems can be solved. Having have said that, we realize that there is criticism uh, concerning this the current legislation uh, in Israel. There are critics on both sides also in Poland. There are many in Poland who, who think that Poland should not have changed the legislation. And there are some who criticize the current shape of the legislation, that it doesn't go as far as they would hope. As I said in the beginning, um, AJC... Uh, with its long history of engagement in Polish-Jewish relations, with its 
unique understanding of the difficult uh, history of Poland was very clear from the beginning that the best solution would be to have no legislation at all and that through the dialogue and education those issues should be solved. Nevertheless, uh, we are glad that amendments have been made and that we can move forward. And what role have we at AJC played in tackling this, uh, this tricky legislation? Well, AJC actually has been very active on this issue from the very beginning. Um, we were very present uh, in the Polish media as well as, as uh, media abroad. From the beginning, we raised our concerns about the legislation. We've worked together with our partners uh, in the Polish government to try to find solutions from this uh, situation. We have also used our knowledge and the sensitivity that is there at AGC towards complicated Polish history and the fact that, yes, Poland suffered immensely, and yes, there were Poles who risked their lives to save Jews uh, during the Second World War, uh, but also acknowledge the fact that there are also darker sides of, of the history of Poland, and confronting those darker, darker sides are a sign of a mature society and is something that is needed for open dialogue, a dialogue in which both sides listen to themselves and are ready to listen uh, to their story. So ADC has been quite active on this issue, both publicly, also a little bit less publicly. At the end of the day, we're glad that Polish parliament decided to make the amendments. Agnieszka, let's talk about the No to Hatred conference that AJC Central Europe recently put together in partnership with the city of Warsaw. Tell us about that. Well, this was a very important event for for us uh, in Warsaw, for us at AJC Central Europe. Um, The conference explored specific actions taken by the authorities of several largest Polish cities, to build tolerance, to build solidarity, to build respect among the residents, um, and how they can counteract the attitudes and acts of hatred motivated by prejudice. Um, It is certainly uh, an issue um, that is problematic in Poland, just like in in many other places in Europe, Um, and Poland is no exception to this. Um, and we were very, very pleased that uh, four mayors of, of big Polish cities, Warsaw, Poznań, Gdańsk and Białystok, they decided to join us. Um, they shared with us their experience in, um, in fighting uh, hatred and fighting crimes uh, based on prejudice. It was a very well-attended event. It, it happened at the Pauline Museum of the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw. Um, with more than 100 people in the room, which included diplomats, members of Polish parliament, um, members of the city councils, representatives of the Jewish communities and other ethnic and religious minorities. We also um, had Anna Azari, the Israeli ambassador, to welcome our guests and uh, our keynote speaker, Rabbi Andrew Baker. And I think that the statement which four mayors signed, which was urging implementation of a policy of zero tolerance for prejudice, xenophobia, and anti-Semitism, is a very, very important signal that Polish take those issues seriously and are dedicated to act, are dedicated to actually take concrete steps to fight anti-Semitism and xenophobia in Poland. And this is a much welcome and much needed statement. What do you think motivated these mayors to come? I think the recognition... Uh, of the importance of the issue, their will of uh, 
of creating an environment in Poland that is um, that is open, that is friendly. Um, also realizing that um, phenomena like anti-Semitism or xenophobia are not only problems that concern Jewish community or other minorities communities. Xenophobia and anti-Semitism are, are a problem for the whole civic society. Um, and in a way, the way we treat those problems um, is a litmus test of, of, of the strength of democracy, actually. Um, so especially in the, in the time uh, not long before local elections in Poland, the presence of the mayors uh, was significant and important, and we are very grateful for that. We also hope that mayors of other cities in Poland will join in signing the statement which was presented during the conference. And has the national government responded in any way? Have they been you know, moved to act by this convening? There was no, no direct response from the central government to the statement or to the conference. And again, the idea of the conference was to talk about it uh, on a local level, because of course, solutions on the central government level are crucial, are important, are indispensable. But at the same time, it is at the local level that we really make the change and that really concrete steps and actions uh, are being taken. Of course, the two do not exclude themselves by no means. The actions taken by the central government and the local governments, they have to go hand in hand together. Um, and we welcome all and any steps taken by the government of Poland to combat anti-Semitism, to combat uh, xenophobia. And uh, some steps are being taken, to, to, to also be clear. Uh, but we think that more is needed, and we are, we are more than ready to, to cooperate and to participate um, and to work together in this direction. Well... I've made the drive from Białystok to Warsaw, and it's not short, and Gdansk and Poznan are even further away. So kudos to you and your team for attracting uh, such significant local leaders from all across Poland to Warsaw for this important conference. Thank you very much. And again, I want to also stress, you've mentioned that the conference was uh, co-organized with the city of Warsaw, but but I would like to stress again uh, our gratitude to the city of Warsaw and to the Warsaw mayor, Hanna Grotkiewicz-Walt, because when we discussed this idea, she joined with no hesitation and we would not have done it uh, without her support and without this cooperation. Agnieszka, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Australia. Good for the Jews? Perhaps we up here in the Northern Hemisphere don't think too much about Australia and whether it's good for the Jews. How many of us know, for example, that the city with the highest concentration of Holocaust survivors anywhere outside of Israel is not New York, L.A. or Paris, but actually Melbourne, Australia. This week, Oz further cemented its reputation when Foreign Minister Julie Bishop announced that the country would be redirecting its foreign aid for Palestinians, where once it went to a fund that could be fungible, now it will go to one that exists specifically to provide Palestinians with health care, food, water, and shelter. Australia decided to take this step, to ensure that the millions of dollars of aid it sends each year 
didn't end up supporting the Palestinian Authority's policy of paying terrorists and their families for attacks carried out against Israel. If more countries take this step, not cutting their aid to the Palestinians, but making sure that it is not abused, that'll ultimately be good for the Palestinians. And it'll definitely be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.